Greetings, fellow humans. Welcome to episode 62 of the Masterclass. I'm Cam, and he's Dave. Yes, I am. Dave, Hello. you're looking, you've got this radiant glow about you, too. Yes. We've been out at the lake, so a little bit sunburned, a lot tired. So hopefully we can get this done. Uh, you know, uh, I think we're going we're gonna to be... <laughs> Fair to okay. Fair to that's, okay. That's what we're aiming for today. But yes, it is. It's episode sixty-two. It's Memorial Day today. Yes. Look at us working on a holiday. Wow. We're not really working. This no. is just fun. <laughs> but anyways, we're here with episode sixty-two, and we have jumped ahead. Uh, as of last episode, we had finished chapter sixteen of the Gospel of Matthew, but tonight we start chapter eighteen. Mm-hmm. Of the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, some of you may be wondering why we skipped an entire chapter. Uh, I will, I will let you go read Matthew seventeen, and then come back, and then we'll start chapter eighteen. We just felt that there was uh, that that seventeen was fairly self-explanatory; that there was not a whole lot of um, red letters that needed further explanation. I think that's a fair assessment of our thought process. Yeah. So we decided, hey, we're just going to jump to 18 and keep on moving on with, you know, the good old red words. Yes. So that leaves us today with uh, Matthew 18 verses 1 through 9, potentially. We'll see how far we get. We'll see. We may not make it through all nine, but that's no. what we're we're aiming for today. So, Dave, would you uh, go ahead and uh, read, please? Absolutely, yes. So we're Matthew 18, verses 1 through 9. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child... Wow. And calling to him a child? Is that is that really the hell that reads? And calling to him a child, he put him, him child. in the midst of them and said, <laughs> "Hey, kid, get over here." Okay, so he so he was calling a child to himself. So, all right, I apologize. <laughs> and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, "Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one." Such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the turtle fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the fire, to the hell of fire. All right. Well done. Rough. Sorry. Well, you know, you made it through, Dave. That's all that, that counts. <laughs> all right. So I suppose we should, you know, start at the beginning since that's where you start. Um who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Why, why do you suppose the disciples were curious about this? Because it doesn't seem like a very disciple thing to ask. Uh, no, maybe not a very disciple thing, but uh, again, I think um, 
their 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 perspective is still of uh, Jesus to set up an earthly throne to you know rule um, that way, and um, I think their focus is on sort of well then who's going to be next in command and that sort of a thing and um you know is it, it, for the time and for the way things were i think that was probably a pretty fair question you know it was pretty common to you know who's your right hand man and uh that sort of a thing um but Jesus was, you know, he's constantly, as we've mentioned many times, he's changing the game. He's changing the way uh, people view the world and what's important. And really, um, I think in a, in a major way here, he does that uh, with their, his response to them about uh, who's the greatest. Yeah, I don't think uh, any of them expected that sort of an answer. No. Uh, whatsoever. Um, yeah, I agree that, I agree with what you said about um, them wanting to know who's going to be, you know, the right hand and and who like who has the power in the new regime and and all of that, uh, especially because uh, what is it, uh, John and what's his brother's name, the brothers of <laughs> Zebedee. Yes, was it John and James? No, no, because James is Jesus. Is it Andrew? <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, those two, one of them, their mom gets involved. Yes, and wants to know. And wants to know if they can sit at his right hand when he comes into power. And they have to be like, oh, mom, not in front of my friends. And Jesus has got to explain, that's not how this is going to work, because clearly you guys don't understand yet how this is going to be different. But um, what I think uh, is most interesting about this is that he immediately understands what their uh, heart is in asking the question. Mm-hmm. And instead of, you know, lecturing them or explaining to them uh, in, you know, like uh, patronizing father talk, he just grabs a kid, <laughs> which is and the, the thing that I've, that I've come to notice about Jesus is that his, when he is trying to make a point he seems to know exactly the right way to do it, mm-hmm. whether that's flipping the tables over, whether that's washing feet, whether that's telling, uh, you know, Mary or Martha, I can't remember which one was being super busy. Um, he always has an easily understandable example and uh, illustration to point out. And so he grabs this kid and he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. And while I think that that certainly would have caught them off guard and um, is not at all what they were expecting, I think their initial response would have been like, well, what does that mean? Because we're expecting one thing, you know, to be rulers and to take over and to rule ourselves, and you're saying I've got to be like a kid. Mm-hmm. Kids don't rule. Kids don't really know how the world works. Kids are naive. Kids are, to Jesus' point, humble because they just don't know, you know? Um, And so I think that this brings up a whole nother set of questions, which I would like to get into is um, when he says, unless you turn and become like children, 
you'll not you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean to turn and become like a child? Like, do I have to, you know, lose all of the uh, knowledge and experience I've gained since I was a child to mm-hmm. become a child? Like, what, what purpose does that serve? Um, so I'm just curious what your thoughts are on the, on the whole be like a child. Um, well, a couple of thoughts. One, <clears throat> I, a child in Jesus' day was truly a second-class citizen. It was, um, you did not have any value unless you could hold a job and uh, actually contribute to the family. Um, the, I, I'm not exactly sure timeline, but you know, it, it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't unusual for, uh, it, around this time. And I, I again, I, I'm not exactly hundred percent sure when and where, but, um, you know, for a female, child, a daughter, to just be left out into the elements to die. Um, so uh, when we think of children, again, in 21st century America, we very much have this sense of, uh, if, if you do something to a child, uh, people, people very much hold, you know, even though they're naive and young, there's this element of we kind of hold kids up. Uh, in that, uh, you know, kind of my warped perspective is, as a police officer is, you know, child molesters are the lowest of the low, like even in prison, you know, the pecking order in a prison, a child molester is the bottom um, of the rung. And uh, we just don't, and I don't, not that they would think child molestation was fine in Jesus' day, but um, kids just didn't hold a whole lot of value. And so, uh, I think one of the things that's going on here is that, you know, because uh, the verse says, whoever humbles himself like a child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So I think there's that element of just truly emptying ourselves and humbling our, us to the point of becoming like a child who in Jesus' culture, you know, didn't have much value. Um you were kind of there until you could actually contribute and um yeah and and I think inherent in in that is the dependency that you have as a child on others in your life right mm-hmm. you know as, as a child you are dependent upon your parents or guardians to feed you to clothe you to house you to teach you to do all of the things that you cannot do because you're either are physically unable to do them. You don't have the knowledge. You don't have the skills. You don't have the experience. You know, you are reliant upon other people for survival for a long time Yeah, in your life. And I think that one of the things that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples throughout his ministry and then subsequently us through our relationship with him is our need to rely on him that we cannot earn it. We cannot work towards earning it. We cannot accomplish it ourselves. And and so this idea of humbling ourselves like a child is for us to realize in the grand scheme of things, we don't have control and we must rely on somebody else to accomplish Right. Oh, what definitely. needs to be accomplished. Yeah. And and so now I'm thinking of the phrase 
you know, child of God. What does it mean to be a child of God? It certainly means to be in relationship with the Father, but it also means that we have to, in in our relationship with Him, understand we are children. It doesn't matter how smart we are. It doesn't matter how strong we are. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter how popular or successful we are um, from a worldly basis. What matters is that we are children that are dependent upon God for providing our basic survival needs. And and we get down to that here at the bottom when, you know, he says it's better to, to go into life with one eye than with two eyes to go into the hell of fire. And he's trying to protect us from that latter part, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he's trying as a good parent to provide life and safety and, you know, perfection for his children. And so yeah. I think it's easy to get wrapped up in the, oh, to be like a kid, you've got to, you know, be joyful all the time and, and discover new things. And be, <laughs> I think that might be taking it a little too far uh, into the be, just be an ignorant, you know, little kid. I think one of, you know, to, I guess, put a final bow on, on my my idea here is that being a child in comparison to God is just all about dependence and realizing that it doesn't matter how adult we act. Right. We still have to, and again, I come back to that word, be dependent on God mm-hmm. for the stuff that we can't provide and even for the, some of the stuff that we probably could provide ourselves if we wanted to, but having that long perspective of who I am in comparison to God, I think is a, a big component of what it means to be in a relationship with him. Yeah, definitely. You know, <clears throat> excuse me. I've done that a couple of times. Um, yeah. Cause I, it, there is an element too, though, of, and I, and I'm with you in that we don't need to be childish and, and act like children, but it's really interesting. I, I teach a and facilitate, instruct, I'm not sure, uh, some training um, where we teach people to be better at having difficult conversations. And it's really interesting because when you think about why people do the things they do, it's, it's really because being childlike has been taken out of us. And it's just... As, as you're younger, you don't have a hard time being honest with people. You know, you can, you can see something that looks odd and you'll point it out. You can, you know, tell somebody they're funny looking or, you know, they smell or, or whatever. And it's like somewhere along the line, it gets ingrained in our brains that it's rude uh, to behave that way. And um, I just, just, as I was teaching one of the the classes recently, just really had this realization that a lot of what we do as adults um, comes from sort of this, well, cultural and societal pressures to conform and to belong and and that sort of thing to where uh, it almost reaches a point where we're not really who we are anymore uh, because we want to be polite. We want to be respectful. Not that those things can't go hand in hand, but um, my experience has been I've I've just sort of noticed that the pendulum kind of swings a little bit too far 
and people people just genuinely don't know how to uh people don't know how to speak the truth in love without offending another person or they're well, afraid to do it and i i think that's one side of the coin the other side of the coin is that people not all people some people are not willing to hear oh that's definitely true that's you know so true. even yeah. if you have someone who's trying to be respectful yet speaking the truth yeah the other person which i i admit the first person is probably rare yeah. But finding then someone who's willing to listen and take in what's mm-hmm. being told, it's probably even more difficult to find. Yeah. And, and I think as children, we do that. You know, now that granted, there's, there's still that selfish, sinful nature there. Don't get me wrong. But it's just, it's just, it just really kind of, and I'm not trying to make more out of this than, than it should be, but it just really did strike me that. So much of what we do and in our cultural norms are learned behaviors that on the front end kind of come from this concept of we're making you into a better human being. We're teaching you how to be. And it's it's really um well, kind of what we've talked about a lot in this. It's about behavior modification. It's really not about uh developing the character of a human. Uh, yeah. It's getting people to behave the way we want them to behave or that we think they should. So, And that verse ends with these words. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, which um, I think is an interesting way to sum up the idea. Uh, he's kind of answering their question, who's the, who's the greatest? Well... You've got to be like this child, like you said. That's what greatness in my kingdom looks like, which I'm sure they were, you know, confused about, befuddled even, perhaps. Yeah, I think that's exactly what he's doing, is giving them an answer to their question. All right. Up next, it says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Um, Noted. Yeah. (laughs) Yikes. Yes. All right, so what does it mean when he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me? What What does he mean by receive there? Because that's an interesting choice of word. Yeah. Uh, I guess I don't, I guess ultimately I don't know, um, what he's talking about there. Uh, there's this element of, and and I'm speculating here and I'm just sort of thinking out loud of, I, I mean, is this like a street kid? Is this like a, or is this somebody's kid in the crowd that's, that's following along? And and I might be taking a little bit of liberty with this, but they're just there. It seems to me that um, this he's talking about a child uh, that needs care that um, is is not necessarily with uh, a family. Uh, James one twenty seven tells us religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this to visit orphans and widows. 
in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And I just, I, I do know that one of the things that Jesus did um, in his time here on earth was elevate the status of people like orphans and and widows in the Christian church or the church um, at that time really stepped up their game after Jesus when it came to taking care of widows and taking care of orphans um, and just seeing the importance of caring for another human being for the fact that they were, uh, that they are another human being uh, that, that didn't occur on a regular basis before Jesus came. And so I, I do believe that in this particular uh, case where he's, he's saying, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, um, is he's, he's really talking about caring for a child and providing for the needs of a child. And uh, basically, um, I can't even remember where this verse is, but where he talks about, you know, when you, when you do this to the least of me, you do it to me. When you fed me, oh, yeah, visited yeah. me in jail. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what verse that is. And yeah. I think that's a parallel here, sort of same things going on uh, when he's talking about receiving this child. I think I'm inclined to agree with you there, sir. Yeah. Uh I also I think the the idea of receiving um obviously I'm I'm drawn to football. <laughs> um but to receive something means to, you know, someone is sending it. Mm-hmm. And you are doing whatever you can to ensure that you wind up with it in a, you know, safe and appropriate manner. And so, um, I think, like I said earlier, that receiving is a, is an interesting word choice here. Cause in my mind, it paints a pretty vivid picture of like, you know, Jesus is the quarterback and not that he's necessarily flinging a child through the air and I have to go catch it before <laughs> it crashes. But this idea that there is, the children are this very special, um, you know, package or, uh, thing that needs to be protected at all costs to the mm-hmm. point where he says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better that you've got a giant millstone around your neck and you get tossed into the ocean and drown. That to me paints a very vivid picture of how important children are to God. Right. And how they are not to be messed with in the way that the world wants to. And so uh, to me, that, that's, that to me is why the, the idea of a wide receiver catching a football, like this, this thing is in limbo. It can't protect itself. It, it can't uh, divert its path. It, it just, as we said earlier, is kind of out of, out of um, doesn't have control. It's just along for the ride until mm-hmm. it can can learn, you know, the ways of, of the world and, and of God. And it's our job to ensure that that child is protected and is safe and is brought into um, an environment where it can grow up knowing about God. So I think that's my, that's my, I don't know, word picture or, you know, the thing that's going to help me remember it's Calvin Johnson. Whew, touchdown. 
So, well, and you know, one of the things that <clears throat> we're being challenged with at church right now is that um, basically there's 3,000 kids in the foster care system in the Kansas City area. Yeah, a little and, over 3,000. And there are more than 3,000 churches in the Kansas City area. So it's like literally if one person from each church mm-hmm. steps up and does what should be done correctly by these kids, then there shouldn't be any kid in the foster care system. And, you know, I think I think this is one of those areas where... um we don't do as well as we should as the church. Yeah. I mean, the fact that the government has to step in with mm-hmm. the foster care system is kind of proof that the church has not done. And, and, you know, you hate to just make a blanket statement like the church has failed children because um, there are plenty of people in plenty Absolutely. of churches that yes. are doing wonderful, amazing, good things on the behalf of, children. But that being said, there's still an issue of kids that are stuck in the system mm-hmm. and are never going to get a fair shake because the church has over the course of the long term not done what is required to the point that our government has had to step in. Right. You know, and if we really do believe in the separation of church and state, then the church needs to do its own part. <laughs> yeah. And absolutely. not force the state to do its part and half of the church's part. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Well, should we move on to temptations to sin? Because that's a topic I really want to talk about. <laughs> sure. I was hoping you were gonna say no. But anyways, uh all right. So this is we're now into Verse 7 of chapter 18. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. I agree. For it is necessary that temptations come. I disagree. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Why is it necessary for temptations to come? I don't like that it's necessary for them to come. That seems mean and cruel and unfair. And I sound like a kid. (laughs) Yeah, and maybe I'm just overly simplistic in this again. But to me, this is just, it's by the nature of of God allowing us to choose. Um, There has to be something else to choose, and that something else... um, Why couldn't that something else just be beige? (laughs) Like, you know, it's, it's there, it's a thing, it's not terribly exciting, it's not terribly enticing. Why does that other choice have to be something that looks so good but is rotten on the inside? Um, well, a couple of things. One, I, I don't think I don't think everything that we choose is inherently evil. Uh, but I think anything that we choose over God to take the place of God. Um, is a is a temptation is um like I don't think watching TV in and of itself is sinful. I don't think social media in and of itself is evil or sinful, but I w- I would venture to guess that each and every one of us chooses to be entertained or chooses to take the mindless route when it would probably be more effective for us to 
spend time with God. So all gifts are from him and um I don't think it, I don't think temptation always has to be um just outright sin. I think sometimes it's well the the thing that we're choosing in and of itself may not be, you know, there's really n- neither good nor bad. But if we put it above God or or if we use that thing to um satisfy us, to pacify us, to, you know, do whatever it is that we should be allowing God to do. I think that's, I think it's just the nature of anything you choose that's not God becomes sin, becomes uh, temptation. I think the second piece is, is that, uh, we talked about this before too, is is that, um, you know, Satan was, was um, basically the, while he was an angel and he was, second in command, second in command to the point where he thought he could take on God. And so when, uh, as the Bible says, he fell like lightning from heaven, um, the person that tempts us, he's not a little red guy with a pitchfork and um, horns and, you know, red suit and all that good stuff. He is very attractive very appealing, very good uh, at what he does. Um, say what you will about the movie. I think it's called Bedazzled, and I think I've mentioned it before, where, uh, oh, I'm going to draw a blank on her name now. It was Brennan Fraser and Elizabeth Hurley, right? Elizabeth Hurley, thank you. Uh, it, Satan is probably more like Elizabeth Hurley for us guys <laughs> than he is what we probably tend to think of Satan. He's, he's beautiful. Uh, and I, and I, and I mean that in a very real, you know, um, he is an angel and, um, is very good at making himself appealing. And so I think there's the two sides of it is basically the point that I'm making. One, we have somebody that's out there trying to tempt us. We have somebody whose job is to do that or who has made that his job. His job is to to work very diligently at causing us to um, not choose God, and he puts those things out there to tempt us. And then I think there's just the second inherent piece of, much like Satan, there was nobody there tempting him. Uh, He made a choice to go against God, and I think we do the same thing. Anything that we choose, anything that we choose, uh, and we elevate to a place higher than God, um, is also temptation. So... Long, long answer to a, <laughs> I'm not going to say easy question. Well, I think your answer is sufficient to make me stop whining. So mission accomplished. <laughs> I See, I'm going to keep whining. I'm a whiner. <laughs> I like to Well, I meant, I meant whining on the podcast. I oh, okay. <laughs> Come on, you know me. Um, all right. Now we get to the fun part. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Mm-hmm. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Mm-hmm. So here's my question. What if your brain tempts you to sin? I can't really remove that. No, and not live, because you could have a lobotomy. 
Yeah, I it, this is this is very much the um he does not want us to do this. And it is that whole um kind of back to what you were talking about um earlier of just we are dependent on him. I mean, we are literally like children. We can't physically do anything um to save ourselves. Um, yeah, there might be this concept, uh, you know, and, and basically what he's doing is he's taking the law to its logical conclusion of if you, if you really play this out, um, and that's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees had made the law was this list of things that they would or wouldn't do to keep themselves from sinning. And he's just saying, well, go ahead and take it to its logical conclusion Ultimately, you're dependent on my grace, much like a small child is dependent on uh, someone to provide for them. They can do nothing on their own. You are exactly the same way when it comes to temptation, when it comes to sin, and when it comes to uh, forgiveness from those things. Well said, sir. Well said. I'm inclined to agree with you. Well, thank you. Uh, Well, I think that brings us to the end. Yeah. We got through those nine verses much quicker than I had thought we would. So that's good or bad. I'm not sure, but you know, either way it is what it is. Um, so that is it for episode 62. If you guys want to get in touch, we would certainly love that. Uh, you can get Dave on Twitter at 10, eight HBO. You can get me at Cam Brennan, or you can email us hello at supermegacorp.net to share your thoughts, to correct ours, um, or to offer further wisdom. Assuming that what we have is wisdom. Mm, yeah. But anyways, uh, well, I guess that's it, Dave. All right. Bye. Bye.